Open with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. To the book of 1 Timothy, we'll be reading uh, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 2 this morning, page 991 in the Bible in front of you if you don't have a Bible. That's okay. We've always got plenty. Next week, we will take a one-week break from our series through 1 Timothy. I'll be on vacation with my family and Brad Baum, our friend from Emmanuel Bible Church, will be here to preach for us. I will miss being with you, which you will be uh, taken care of under the word. Our family will be in Disney World exploring the magic kingdom. It's one of those places you can't get done in a day. I mean, you have to study how to take advantage of your time in the magic kingdom. Even two days or even many days may not be enough. There's more to explore. It's an expansive place. And the invitation is open to all. And of course, a talking mouse is not real and neither is a magical kingdom. It's a nice thought and everyone seems to like to have the thought. And in the faces of our, our kids, at least up until a certain age, we're reminded that we really do like the thought that everything might just be right in the world. And we might even join them and pretend, even if for a few days at a time. Well, today, we explore a passage with expanses that will take eternity to explore. It is a call to pray, which is more than wishful thinking. It is nothing less than participation in the inbreaking of God's true kingdom in this world. Let's read together 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 8. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Urgency pervades this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. A wartime feel, as you'll remember, characterized chapter one. I urge you, Timothy, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Only three verses in, we've got words of urgency and charge. An urgent responsibility for the sake of the gospel in the church. Well, now in chapter 2, we have another urgent responsibility of Timothy, something like a local pastor. He's establishing churches, more like a planter, but for the sake of the gospel through the church. We're a few weeks deep now in our series titled, Building a Healthy Church. The church, as Paul calls it, is the the pillar in the buttress of truth, he'll say in chapter 3. That's building and architectural imagery, he'll call the church the household of God. And I'm calling this a healthy church that he's aiming at. The church is held together by what he calls sound doctrine or, or good words, otherwise translated healthy and a godliness that accords with healthy or sound or, 
or good doctrine. So we have the repetition of good doctrine, sound words, and this accent on the church, the pillar and the buttress of truth. And so what Timothy is doing here, and what Paul is writing to strengthen Timothy for, is that of building a healthy church, a sound church. That's what Timothy is there to do. And as we'll see today, it's not an alternative to a focus on Christ that may be easy to to, uh, to think the church is indeed the focus of Christ. And this is not an alternative to the focus on mission. For a healthy church is indeed a sent church. In chapter 2 here, we enter the body of the letter. He says, first of all, then. All of chapter 1 was a kind of extended greeting and charge. First of all, then, he says. And this part of the body of the letter will conclude midway through chapter 3 when he speaks of Uh, When he says, this is how one ought to behave in the household of God. So we have some instructions now for for Pastor Timothy on how he's to order church life. When we first read this passage, we might have been struck with a few questions. What What is this quiet and peaceful life he speaks of? That sounds good. What does one God and one mediator between men and God have to do with prayers for kings? It kind of sounds like he's... He's talking about prayer, and then he's talking about prayer for rulers and kings, and then he's talking about how there's one God and one mediator. between. How do all these things connect? How do these ideas connect? If we can can discern the logic of these parts, it will unlock the power of the thought in Paul for us. We note here the repeated word all. Let's not miss that right at the head of the sermon. Take a look at the passage again. Listen now for emphasis. First of all, and that's not the one I'm talking about, first of all then I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God and there's One mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. There's a a very expansive, expansive feel to this passage. He wasn't He wasn't stuttering. He's trying to get something done. Chapter 1 had a wartime feel. This this chapter begins at least with a a peaceful, easy feeling. If chapter 1 had had us facing inward, this chapter starts by facing us outward. Chapter 1 on guarding the gospel. This chapter begins with going out with the gospel. An expansive feel to the passage. a A certain wideness to it. And if chapter 1 had us like a drone on the ground before liftoff looking at what's around us in the city and the church at Ephesus and some of the troubles that were there, now it's as though the drone has swept up to show us an expanse in every direction. We remember something like this happening in the book of Colossians 2. Apparently this is a repeated pastoral strategy of Paul's in concern of his. There in Colossians, there were all kinds of things on the minds of the original readers and troubles and and pesterers and pesky teachers of secondary or, excuse me, aberrant doctrine. 
much to keep them up at night. But there was a global horizon Paul gave them, you'll remember, where he spoke of the gospel that's increasing in them and growing throughout the whole world. And he wants them to look around and to see all that God is doing lest they be lost with their little blinders on as to what's just in front of them. Look, look, he said. Don't forget what God is doing. Get about dealing with the things in front of you, but do so with the horizon of God's global work. And the same here, Paul is saying, look, look, look at the expansive heart of God. Look at the work of his son. And as we get to know God here, presumably we will widen in our own hearts. A small heart for the lost, which is what this church was in danger of falling to, betrays a small God in the hearts. And so, with an interest in the mission of the church, he points them to the very heart of God. It seems we all always need these words. We are forgetful. But why did Timothy need these words in particular right here? Perhaps it's because of what false teaching does to the church and even to a pastor. It turns our attention inward. You'll see verse 8, he speaks of anger and quarreling. False teaching might be the kind, as we've rehearsed, that directly opposes the gospel and denies gospel truth. It may also present alternative doctrines, additional doctrines that eclipse the gospel. One kind directly refutes gospel truth. The next just takes the eyes of the church off gospel truth. Endless speculations he speaks of and genealogies and such. False teachers had their Bibles open, reading Bible verses, and then just talking and talking and talking and talking. And they love to hear themselves talk. And they love to be the teachers. And they love to be heard teaching. And they love to have authority. But they didn't understand the scriptures. Chasing rabbits off the page into wherever instead of the one trail that leads us to Christ. It shrinks our view of God, false teaching does. It makes us to go inward. It fosters a kind of an elitist spirit in the church where everyone else is wrong and we're right. And it makes us think that what happens on our property each week is right and what happens in other properties is wrong or deficient. What Paul's concerned of, I think, here is a shrinking heart in the people so that distracted with endless speculations, quarreling, and controversy over words he describes... It's interesting, he doesn't even robustly engage the controversies over words. He just mentions them as he goes. He doesn't give them the time. By distraction with these kinds of things, the church is actually unhooked from its work in the world. And so he widens their view. Easy for us to forget our way. But Paul would not let Timothy forget, and that's what he's doing. Paul recounted already the mercy that he received, the foremost sinner. It's a trustworthy saying, Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's right out front on this, in this letter. And he was one of them, and so was Timothy, and so were you and I, and we have received mercy. And there are all kinds of things Jesus did not die to take from us, and which he did not die to give to us. But he did die to take away our sins, and he did come in order to give us his righteousness, and that is the most precious truth that there is. And it must be the most precious truth to us. And for a church that was going inward, and to a pastor, Timothy, who was tempted to focus 
inwardly and only on what was in front of him, Paul reminds him of where his gospel comes from and where his gospel goes. As a pastor, Timothy would not only need this perspective, but he would need to lead his people in it. And that's why it begins with this command to lead his people in praying. Such an important work of the pastor and the pastors at a church. Our far-reaching prayers, that's where we begin, verses 1 and 2. Our far-reaching prayers. There's a lot of talk going on at Ephesus. Paul would like there to be a whole lot of prayer going on. Talking, you see, is a good way to acknowledge your own existence and the existence of the people in front of you and the existence of your great ideas and what's in your head as it falls out your mouth. Well, talking to God is a good way to acknowledge his greater existence. And in everything we ask him for, our great dependence upon him for it all. First of all, then, I urge, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every, in every way. We'll start with the first part. It's interesting here. He doesn't say, he doesn't say make sure you pray. Um, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. It's not even just prayer. It's prayers, plural, and not even just prayers, but supplications, intercessions, and thanksgivings. He's piling on, he's piling on words. It's a kind of a lively and frequent prayer. Different kinds of speaking engagements with God. And what's the, what's the difference of these? Well, to tease out each of the words, supplications would be Petitions, asking God for what he can give. Prayer is a more general term. Intercessions, urgent, bold pleadings on behalf of others that God would work for them. And thanksgivings are as they sound, giving thanks to God for all the prayers that he answers and all that he does that we never asked him to do and all that he's doing that we can't, that we can't see. We shouldn't strain ourselves too hard to meet some kind of list in our speaking with God. John Calvin himself said, I admit that I do not completely understand the difference. That's a good commentator. I admit, it seems that Paul is piling on words here. It's just good to think in terms of variety. Are a good percentage of your prayers, prayers for food? Uh, This convicts me at times. Not because you're just praying for food all the time, but because you're not praying enough for other things. That's why God gave us a passage like this. And it's why he gives elders to his church to lead them in various kinds of prayers. An increasing frequency and variety. Paul is piling up words to get across the basic idea that he wants us speaking to God a whole lot and about a whole lot of things and with a whole lot of kinds of ways. Paul will actually mention praying for food, if that's worth anything in this this book. Sometimes we may uh, give praying for food a hard time. Uh, maybe, Maybe that's because we, maybe we grew up in a home where prayer was only praying for food, and maybe that critique is, is fair. He says in chapter four, for everything created by God is good, Nothing's to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, 
for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. We set apart our food. We acknowledge that God made it, brought it to our, our table, and in asking God to strengthen us with it and in giving him thanks for it, there is a kind of blessing that we receive. So pray for your food. But here these various kinds of prayers have a certain focus. You notice it? What is it? It's prayers for, for all people. Be busy in your prayers with the names of people. People you know that are nearby, people that you know that are far away, people that you don't know that are far away. Specifically, he hones in on, though, kings and all those who are in high positions. That's how far our prayers should reach. And that's farther away than the food on our plate. But it actually has something to do with the food on our plate and so many other things that that close to home. And why pray for them? Well, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in, in every way, a certain tranquility, a certain peace in life, in order that we might, we might live godly and dignified lives. It reveals something this verse does of the job of a state in the plan of God. To protect life, here the goal is, after all, that we would live a quiet life, life. And to preserve peace, that we may lead a peaceful life, that our lives would not be caught up with violence and trouble and defending ourselves and confusion. The rule of law, that the laws conform to the moral reality of the universe and its enforcement is a gift from God. However people in high places get there, they are there for people in every place under them and not the other way around. We can be thankful to God and to those in high places here for relative peace where and when we live. In fact, our sensitivity to certain range of injustices reveals something of how peaceful it really is. About these kings and such, is there a line that a public leader can cross that will mean we opt out of praying for them? Well, consider that Nero was busy killing Christians and blaming them for all kinds of trouble in Rome. He was set against Christians, torching them even. Now we can pray for any and all of our leaders. My, when they're doing that kind of thing, that's all the more reason to pray for them, And it's okay that they would pray, pray to stop uh, their injustices against their people when that happens. Well, where we have a state that is our enemy, it's actually an opportunity to fulfill Jesus' words to us in Matthew 5, 44. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And God forbid it actually be the state. But we can pray that the state protects us from the persecution of others, even though we know that in good measure, in some measure, that will always come. These kinds of prayers weren't unusual for the early church. Think of Clement at Rome. He lived in the first century. Grant them, Lord, healthy, peace, harmony, and stability, so that they may give no offense at administering the government you have given them. And Tertullian, about 100 years later, we pray also for emperors, for their ministers and those in power, that their reign may continue, that the state may be at peace, and that the end of the world might be postponed. Pray for the postponement of the end of the world 
and peace in government. About this peace, what does it entail? Space for eating out, wakeboarding on the weekends, and enjoying the family? Well, it may no doubt mean some of that. But why is Paul instructing his his, uh, protege in church leadership, Timothy, to lead his church in praying for kings and those in high places specifically? And what good is the the peace and tranquility that he seems to describe as a, a result? For a life without trouble? Oh, it seems trouble has promised us. For a life to ourselves? That doesn't sound quite right either. What exactly is this peace and quiet we pray for good for? We find next that the ground of our far-reaching prayers for people in high places is in some way related to God's own far-reaching heart. Verses 3 and 4. God's far-reaching heart. Why pray this way? Why pray for this kind of peace and quiet? Verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What about him? Who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth? There are a number of things that are pleasing in my sight. A clean house is pleasing in my sight. An empty email inbox, that's more pleasing to my sight. The face of my dog when I come home from work, that's pleasing in my sight. A heap of bacon on my plate is pleasing in my sight. We've all got stuff that's pleasing in our sight. Some things that are pleasing in my sight stop with me. Those, those are some examples. Some things that are pleasing in my sight are pleasing because of the way that they work cyclically in the pleasure of others. The way they envelope others. My wife having a great day is pleasing in my sight. My children flourishing are pleasing in my sight. Those are deeper. Those are deeper pleasures. Here, peace and quiet are pleasing in God's sight because they're good for gospel advance. See, kings and people in high places have something to do apparently with the advance of the gospel throughout the world. And the kind of peace and quiet that God is pleased with is the kind that gives occasion for the gospel to go out. How else can we understand this? Why does peace and a quiet, dignified, godly life please God our Savior? It's because he desires that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Peace for propagation of the gospel. The first century knew plenty of this. And it didn't. Of course, there was much trouble for Christians in the first century. Nevertheless, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was not Paul and were not the early Christians able to move freely about on roads constructed for the mobilization of all kinds of animals and people on the road. Also, the gospel moved. The kind of peace and quiet we pray for is the kind that lets us speak of peace with God through Christ Jesus. Not a peace for ourselves, it's a peace for the proclamation of peace to the world. We pray for this peace because God desires that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray far-reaching prayers all the way into high places, not merely for the protection of the people of God, but for the preservation of his message and its spread in the world. Peace makes it easy for the knowledge of the truth To travel. Peace designs and makes and repairs roads. Peace 
relative peace and an orderly society leads to the invention of air travel to places where the gospel is not, is not known. Peace leads to innovations in technology like the printing press and the radio and now the internet and video that allow for the gospel to travel. And peace makes it easy for the knowledge of God to get to people and for us to get to people with all kinds of other care, clean water solutions, all kinds of incredible solutions to human ailments and ills allows us to address human need and with it, the gospel, word, and deed. Just consider that in our day, the relative peace we experience is the answer to the prayers of others at other times, a reason for us likewise to pray. And just consider that in the last several hundred years, particularly maybe in our nation, given the way that it's constructed constitutionally, there has been an incredible flourishing of gospel work. Just look at our own region with its incredible number of churches and an incredible spread of the gospel out from this place. Persecution does scatter the people of God, but all the better when we are free from it so that we might scatter anywhere and everywhere we might want, anywhere we can get. Send our kids off to learn linguistics so they might be dropped into the bush to learn a language and translate the scriptures. Those kinds of things take a good measure of stability to pull off. It's not the only good, but the highest good that comes to humanity as a result of a well-ordered and properly restrained and focused human government is the spread of the gospel. And so, friends, we must offer thanks to God. Intercessions, prayers, all of that, but we must offer him thanks. Thanks for the freedom to gather and worship as we have here, as all human government is right to protect. And thanks even more for the ability to scatter anywhere we might want with the word of Christ. No one will stop us from opening our mouth with our neighbor. No one will stop us from inviting a neighbor over for dinner to speak the word of the gospel with them. And no one stops us from any of that. More than God desires the safety of his people, he desires the salvation of sinners everywhere. This is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to come to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there's a question that might be raised here, and it's fair. Uh, does all people here mean all people? It says all people. It's a good question. We know that all people will not, in the end, be saved. And that's a reason to grieve. That's a reason to weep. So can God not fulfill his own desires? This gets down to the doctrine of God. Can he not fulfill his own desires? Or are his desires weak and half-hearted? He desires that all be saved, but meh. I'll just, I'll stop here. Uh, What does it say about God that he would desire all to be saved and all would not be saved? Well, clearly he cares. He sent his son He sent his son to die for sinners, a ransom for all, it says. He's committed to this. What are we to make of this sentence then? I just want to offer a simple distinction. I don't want to spend too much time on this to be distracted. But there's a difference between all without exception and all without distinction. God's desire is great and it extends across the whole world. And it is true that he doesn't desire that any should perish. He is not a bloodthirsty God. Sin grieves him. And by speaking of all here, 
He is speaking in terms of God's expansive care, his expansive purpose for his gospel. The point is this, that God is not a local village deity. His gospel will go everywhere. It will go to all peoples. He is not just our God here. He's the God of the universe, of his people everywhere. And he is on the move because he's moved with a desire for people everywhere. And in the end, he will have them, the joyful worship of men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. Think more in terms of nations, less numerically, less in terms of every individual and more in terms of individuals everywhere. You think of the context of the letter itself with some false teachers focused on genealogies from the Old Testament narrowing the scope of God's purposes, perhaps, to God's ethnically Jewish people born and descended from Abraham. And Paul is saying they're getting it wrong. God's purposes are not merely for those ethnically descended from Abraham, the Jewish people. They get the law wrong. They get their Old Testament wrong, he's saying, going on and on about genealogies. He is saying that God's purposes all along from his promise to Adam and Eve in the garden that a son of Eve would crush the head of the serpent to his purposes for Abraham's children was that through Abraham's children would come one, a Messiah, who would bring blessing to the whole world, to every nation. That expansive, all-inclusive kind of language that pervades our whole Bible is the background for what he's saying right here. All people everywhere. And in the end, we see all kinds of people around God's throne. Perhaps it's because of what false teaching does to a church and even to a pastor that he needs to say this. That turns our attention inward. Anger and quarreling, he's mentioned. There's a kind of self-sufficiency that is very worldly that churches take on to themselves without notice. A sense that we've got this an increasingly narrow and localizing sense of God's work, a meism, And it shows up in other isms that humans just create, whether nationalism, classism, tribalism, certainly racism, narrow lenses with low horizons. And it can apply to individual churches and church movements as well. There's a self-sufficiency that's verily worldly where churches take onto themselves without notice a sense that we've got this. An independent church like ours, my friends, must never be independent in spirit. We are independent because we are not ourselves submitted to any authority outside of ourselves. We're under the authority of Christ, mediated by his word and led by under shepherds. And so there's no such thing as a heritageism. No such thing. The gospel lifts our eyes up and out of the room and off the block and off our our class and off our culture and out to the world. For we are one little outpost, a microcosm of God's global people going to the globe with his gospel. And when he speaks here of the gospel going out to all people and God's desire for all people, he's taking Timothy. And there Timothy is to take his people's eyes off the block and out to God's heart and out then from God's heart to the whole world. So God desires all to be saved. His heart is far-reaching. He has a wide 
heart. We've dwelled on what it means all for just a few moments. Let's be careful not to get distracted. Being a faithful Christian does not begin and end with knowing the right answers to such questions. And of course, we will always wonder why all, every numerous person is not saved in the the end. God, for his glorious purposes and the display of his glory, has his purposes. No, being a faithful Christian begins and ends with knowing the heart of God through such questions. And so we don't want to miss the expansive, far-reaching, wide heart of God that ours might be wide as well. And there is more in God's expansive and wide heart to explore. Yet, why does God desire all to be saved? Or excuse me, God desires all to be saved. What has he done about it? How can we tell? Well, God's far-reaching heart is seen in Christ's far-reaching salvation. His far-reaching salvation. Verses 5 and 6. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Is Christianity exclusive? Well, if there ever was a text that answered that question, here it is. The word one. And then again, the word one. It's a pretty exclusive word. And here, two ones do not make two, but rather an emphatically exclusive double foundation for God's wide salvation. And here we've moved from God's salvation desire to now some pretty serious doctrine, the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. Exclusive, it begins with one God. Remember in Deuteronomy when God spoke to his people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that oneness is a foundation for the love of his people. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your might. And we see from Scripture that God is jealous for his name, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I am the Lord. That's my name, Isaiah says. He says through Isaiah, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. For my own sake and for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will give to no other. Those whom God saves, God saves as the only God and they will know that he is the one true and living God. But believing that there is one God is not enough. There are others who believe that there is one God. If we get God right, we will know that there aren't many gods and there aren't many ways to God. For there is one God and also there is one mediator between man and God. If you believe or if we preach that there are other mediators, we do not understand God And neither do we understand Christ. And by mediators, we could say ways of salvation, ways of reconciliation with God, ways to him. Why is Jesus Christ the only mediator between God and men? Because he's the only one who can mediate between God and men. This is why we say that there is only one way to God and Jesus is the only way. It's not an arbitrary selection It's not from pride because he's the one that we've said so or the one that we've found. He's the only one who actually can get it done, 
who can bring us there. Speaking of those in high places and kings, we all would seem to just assume without any difficulty that we don't belong on the property of the White House lawn past that fence. And we would surely expect that anyone who wants to jump the fence and charge the door would get tackled, taken down with a dog. If they're seen with a gun or something, and if the president is present, maybe even shot. We wouldn't flinch at that. That is what we would expect. When it comes to God, and this is because of our low conception of God, we seem to expect access and even be offended that we might not have access. But here we're told there's just one God. He's the king of kings, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, deserving of glory and honor forever. And there is only one who can mediate between us, little us, and that immortal, glorious, infinite God. And given who men are and who God is, is why there's one mediator. And that God desires that all to be saved assumes that they are in need of saving. All are in a predicament from which they cannot get themselves out. All are in sin and judgment. And Jesus is the only mediator between God and men because he's the only one who is both God and man. That is, God the Son eternally took on humanity without laying down any of his deity. He took on humanity to himself. And being God, he could put on the infinite weight of sin on his back. And being man, he could do so as a representative of those for whom he died. And in dying, he gave himself, in the language of our passage here, as a ransom for all. For men and women, from every language and people and tribe and nation, for all who would, by the miracle of the new birth, come to him in faith, even the foremost of sinners, which Paul said he was. This good news is, he says, verse 6, the testimony given at the proper time, which is to say that God does everything on time. He sent Jesus into the world in the fullness of time to die and be raised. And he is right now on schedule, seeing that the gospel is spreading in our time, right on time. And it may be reaching you for the first time this morning. For you're hearing the gospel of God the Son who took on humanity to die on a cross in the place of sinners to take away all of their sin. God's great mercy and his grace overflowing to sinners. We don't deserve it. And it's an offer, offer to you if you'll take it. The man, Jesus Christ. The man, his work of coming into the world as a man. Jesus Christ gave. That's his, his work of giving his life and dying in this place, our place for our sins. And he's the mediator. And not only does he make a way for us to come to God, but he mediates and intercedes even for us Right now, he's praying that we would hear and receive the word. That's how far God's desire is to save sinners. That's how far it reaches all the way from heaven down to us and down from us and through us to the ends of the earth. His desires reach the ends of the earth, and so we take the gospel there. And so Paul says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. You see, the opponents are probably putting Paul down in the background. Guys, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
to the Gentiles. That is to say, not just to those of ethnic Abrahamic descent, but I'm appointed a preacher to all nations. He was appointed for that. Now, fourth, the church's far-reaching mission, verses 7 through 8. The church at Ephesus was turning inward, we've said. It was, it was going small. It was getting petty. Often enough, and it's not the explanation for every dying church, often enough where there is a small work and a few people left, it is the tragic end of a long sequence of small thinking, petty fights, controversies that took the church off its work of believing, holding, guarding, and spreading the gospel. And that's why he says in verse 8, I desire then that in every place men should pray. There he is prayer again, bookending the section. Lifting holy hands. How? Without anger or quarreling. <laughs> you're not fighting while you're talking to God. In chapter 6, he'll write of one who is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. Oh, some of you may have experienced that in church life. Constant friction and slander and envy and dissension. What is wrong here? It goes back to ultimately false teaching. Oh, how stupid church fights halt the church's mission. And the problem in a church that isn't on the work of preaching the gospel isn't in the first place a need for, for pump you up speeches to evangelize or, or programs. Reminders and leadership can help. It is in the first place the doctrine of God. He is one and he desires all to be saved. An expansive wide heart that mirrors God's own heart for the world. It's the doctrine of Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, and the doctrine of salvation. Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And there is only one mediator between man and God. Those big, big truths. And being right in our doctrine then doesn't turn us inward, but it actually turns us outward. Being clear and specific in our doctrine doesn't turn us inward, it turns us outward. For we have an outward-facing God, and as we know him... We turn outward with him, for that's where he points. For his desires become ours, and his heart enlargens a church's heart. And so, as we listen in on this letter from the apostle to a first century church leader who's building a healthy church, as Jesus builds it through him, we see that a healthy church is a church that prays, and a church that prays for those in high positions in order that they might live a quiet and godly life, that is to be free to move and free to speak the gospel. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people and all kinds of political stability, for all kinds of salvation through the only one who can mediate between man and God because he's the only one who can pay the ransom for our sins. Prayers that reach high places, a heart as wide as humanity, a savior whose work is complete and a church whose mission has reached. The wideness of God's heart leads us to pray, and it leads us to preach. His far-reaching heart leads us to far-reaching places, and before that, with far-reaching prayers. And so Disney World is a great place to go exploring. I actually don't know that I'll say that in the middle of being in Disneyland. There are lines. Our outer, the outer reaches of the universe more so 
but the heart of God even more. And we will find out how big and how expansive his heart is for all eternity. For perhaps it will take all eternity to realize how glorious he is and in realizing how glorious he is, how immortal he is, how glorious he is, how he is the king of ages, the honor that is due him, perhaps in exploring all of that, we will come ever to realize how far he reached down for us. And will it be the case, I pray it will be so, that we'll be there exploring that, singing and exploring next to brothers and sisters who heard the word of truth through our church and through the witness of you. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you now for those in high places. Oh, we don't pray for those in high places enough. I don't pray for those in high places enough. Perhaps I and we forget how integral those in high places are to your purposes, your design for human government, that it would preserve peace and protect people. And then in doing so, the gospel might go out. And so we give you thanks for the peace that we, that we know. And we pray and ask you for more energy and more insight and more eagerness to take the gospel. And we pray for the gospel as it does go out through those missionaries that we support and those missionaries that we sent. And even here in our community, we pray that it would be heard and that it would be believed and that many would be mediated for by the Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between man and God. And many would come to know the one true and living God. And that many would give praise to you for all eternity along with us through our witness. The King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory to him, honor to him forever. Amen.